0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, and this week we're going to be talking about enlargement. The European Union has a big decision ahead of it. It made certain promises to the northern Macedonian people and to to the Macedonian people. To the Macedonian it's the, people. It's I the Republic
1: see. of North Macedonia, but it's the Macedonian people and the Macedonian language.
0: So for people listening, that's Vesela Cenova, who is the Director <laughs> of ECFR, joining us down the line from Sofia. Also <laughs> on the podcast from Paris, we have Susie Denison, who's the head of our European Power Programme, who will be telling us about why France is skeptical about opening up a membership perspective for northern Macedonia and for Albania. And joining us from Madrid, we have Jose Ignacio Blanca, who is the head of our Madrid office. And as you can hear from this cacophonous introduction, we're going to be going right to the heart of the big disagreement which Europe is, is coping with at the moment, which is how to deal with our Western Balkan neighbours. We have started opening talks with some of the the States and Balkans, but not everybody. And there are bitter divisions, particularly between France and Germany, about what to do on this. The French Europe minister stopped the decision to open negotiations with Albania and northern Macedonia in a meeting of Europe ministers in Luxembourg. And it will now be up to the heads of state and government who are going to try and find time alongside all of the Brexit crises to talk about this. So why don't we start with you, Vessel, and why don't you give us a sense of where we're at in terms of the EU's relationship with the Western Balkans?
1: Well, the EU has been promising for the past, I would say, five years, ever since Albania has the candidate status. And for the past two years to North Macedonia, ever since it decided to change its name, to change the passports of its citizens to amend its constitution and so on. And this promise was reiterated again last year around this time saying that given a a couple of conditions are fulfilled, the opening of negotiations should go ahead. The beginning of this week, France declared that those conditions were not fulfilled. This was not the opinion of uh, most of the other, I would, I should probably say, all of the other member states, and this is why the issue was referred to the European Council, meaning that uh, Europe's uh, heads of government will have to make a decision Thursday or Friday. The position of Berlin has been that Chancellor Merkel, who got the backing of the Bundestag for this, is going to speak to President Macron ahead of the Council and will probably offer some sort of a trade-off for the French support, but. That's the European side of the puzzle.
0: So why don't we go straight to you, Susan? You've been living the French debate around these issues. Why is France, what's France got against Northern Macedonia and Albania?
2: Well, as, as Vessler says, the, the sort of the public message coming out coming from the French government is that this is this is firstly about insufficient progress on the reform agenda in North Macedonia, and secondly about the need for a wider review of the accession process. And the sort of the, the sub official messaging is very much about the second part of that, which is that there, there is a real sort of nervousness and um, within Macron's administration that public opinion in France isn't behind the idea of enlargement more broadly, and indeed European, uh, EU-wide public opinion isn't necessarily there either. And so it's, it's kind of framed in that context. But as Wessler says, I think there's a lot of speculation that that this is also potentially an attempt to push Germany ahead of the summit meeting a little bit further on other files that, that France perhaps wants to see more progress on, from Germany on, including Eurozone reform which is also on the summit agenda. Um, so there is some speculation that movements from Paris on, on this file could unlock um, something else on the other side.
0: So you've been doing a lot of polling and you've just written a, a really interesting report on European public opinion and, and the world. And some of the findings on the attitudes towards enlargement of the Balkans were quite shocking in that. I mean, I think it's only one in 10 people in France supports enlargement and a similar number in Germany.
2: Essentially, Macron is right when he says that European public opinion isn't open to enlarging to all of the Western Balkan countries at the moment. So um, we asked the question back in April 2019 as part of a survey that was carried out for us at ECFR by YouGov, how many Western Balkan countries should join the EU in the next decade? And the highest none answers, as in no country should join, were indeed from Germany, Austria, France and the Netherlands. All of those are above 40%. So in a sense, you, you could say that the, it's, it's French leaders and, and also the Dutch leader who is, is one of the blockers on Albania, uh, who are listening um, to what their people are saying, and uh, Merkel less so. And indeed, only 9% in France, Netherlands and Germany said that all of them should join. So there is this this kind of sense that 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 this is it's going to be a difficult issue with people. Um, as we were just discussing before this podcast, I think that in in the case of the Netherlands, there is a, a distinct worry that because of the experience they had on the Ukraine Association Agreement, that there's a possibility that referendums could be pushed on on accession issues in the coming years, even if that's not something that the government asked for. Because if you have a sufficient number of signatures to a popular petition, that's something you can push in the Netherlands. And then in the French case, I think that there is um, a real worry that public opinion about the EU more generally is pretty low. Pew's research in spring 2019 showed showed France as the member state with the highest unfavourable attitudes to the EU at 47%. So I think Macron is wary and right to be wary about taking steps which, which are going to exacerbate that.
0: But I want to go to Nacho Kaisu to talk about how it looks from, particularly for, for Borrell, who said that he's going to make the, the new EU high representative, who he said he's going to make the Balkans a big focus of his attention. But before we do that, maybe it's worth talking a little bit about what, what the solution to this might be. There were various attempts made by the Finnish presidency to try and decouple northern Macedonia from Albania, which seems to be the least popular country to start talks with. Do you think that's what's going to happen, Vesla?
1: It's one of the possibilities, although France has been very firm in saying that it will take either both in or none of them. And so basically, changing France's position would mean it would be probably easier to start negotiations with both rather than decoupling them. And and obviously, this is going to be also the better solution. But decoupling also is a sign of keeping the, um, the incentives for not only for Albania, but uh, for countries like Bosnia and Herzegovina who still have not opened negotiations to show that the regatta is still there and there there will be other opportunities down the line.
0: So Nacho, how do you see, before we go to Burrell, what do you think this tells us also about the power dynamics within the EU? Because this seems to be part of the new Macron approach of not basically being particularly cooperative for Germany, given how unhelpful Germany was with his agenda.
3: Well, I mean, I think this is very revealing of the fact that For many years, the only enlargement, I mean, the only foreign policy that the European Union had and a very successful, by the way, uh, sort of foreign policy was enlargement. Now that uh, there are, you know, second thoughts or core feet on enlargement, then, you know, foreign policy is void of uh, of instruments. But I think uh, more generally, the problem here is also that these so-called enlargement fatigue that we have constructed among member states is worth looking at closely because it is actually it is worth remembering that it was in the Netherlands and it was in France where deepening as a precondition for widening or for further widening was a stop on its tracks into referenda. And that the fact that, as many people say now, that enlargement was a mistake, we, we should have never done it, we have not digested it. But actually, you know, it's the first enlargement, as we see today, that we're still coming to terms with it. It's Britain, Denmark, and even Ireland have given us more headaches than any of the eastern enlargement countries or candidates. But then now going to the the point today uh, that we are discussing, remember that the commission is the guardian of the treaties. It is for the commission to assess to which extent these candidates meet the conditions. And therefore, this should be a rules-based process with very clear political indications. But there is not a possibility by which members, candidate countries fulfill the conditions or are in the process of fulfilling the conditions. And then you just say no on grounds of uh, public opinion at at home. You know, there, there should be a better way of engineering enlargement than expanding exponentially the number of veto points so as to make it practically impossible, because if then that's the case, we should just put it out of the treaties or regulate it in a completely different way.
0: But to what extent do you think this is also related to France being annoyed about the, the treatment of, of the French commissioner, Sylvie Goulas? I mean, I think on the one hand, as Susie was saying, there's a kind of public opinion justification. There's probably also a sense about Macron's idea of what Europe will succeed. I think, you know, there's a widespread feeling in France, maybe, that the EU hasn't been made stronger through all of its um, Different enlargements, and that there is a, a, a case to strengthen Europe rather than widening it. Yeah, I mean, it's,
3: it's, it's obvious that France has always had a, a problem with uh, Eastern enlargement. It, it always saw as a kind of a power graph for Germany and, and a further factor of destabilization of the Franco German very delicate equilibrium, which was already tilted after reunification. Towards uh, Germany, so so France has never been comfortable with this, and the fact that they introduced uh, in the first place the public opinion clause, which is not, of course, um, formally in the treaties or anywhere else, uh, has a lot to do with the desire to kind of effectively kill any prospectus of enlargement on the kind of semi-automatic way which it would be on if it was for the European Commission managing it. And now that that France and and Macron is not in the best relations with the Visegrads, but also I think, to be honest, there are some issues which we cannot postpone. And we are seeing now how dysfunctional the European Commission, for example, is with just, you know, with 27 commissioners and the process, not only of nomination, but the portfolios, and also, you know, how much we're victims of unanimity on a number of issues like foreign policy, defense, fiscal issues. So to bring in uh, new members without having a proper constitutional and institutional discussion within the EU does not make sense. But I don't see France or anyone promoting that kind of institutional reform, which will make enlargement possible, either because they don't want to make enlargement possible or just because they don't think this institutional reform could work. But so, so we're looking at negotiations and we could end up in a paradox in which you could have very successful negotiations being concluded and then not be ratified because public opinion at this, uh, at this end are not happy with it. And also because governments think that the institutions are not ready for absorbing a new wave of candidates so let's look west and rather than west balkans you know when we look at the problems of enlargement
0: so we should obviously do that but maybe it's worth also thinking a bit about how this relates to the western balkans because the countries in the western balkans have access to the internet they listen to the news they can see all these debates going on how much credibility does opening accession talks even have in different member states now Vesler? i mean we've having a big fight between different member states. But it seems extremely unlikely that even if any of the countries of the Western Balkans met all of the criteria, that they would be allowed in, or at least allowed in on terms which are similar to previous enlargements of the EU, given how much fuss there is about freedom of movement and other kinds of things. um, It's almost unthinkable that there wouldn't be some sort of referendum in the Netherlands or somewhere else to to block any further enlargements.
1: First is... Can we decouple the negotiations from the accession? Meaning, if we talk about this present day, about this week, can we look at the impetus the start of negotiation is going to give to the reforms in North Macedonia and Albania? And this is definitely the case. Of course, the the, the, the second bit of this, the question that you just asked, namely, how credible is this altogether? I mean, given the Turkey example whereby negotiations have been going on for a long time and they did not result in accession and right now are basically frozen, the motivation for the Western Balkans is, of course, slightly, uh, let's say, slightly less uh, than it, it has been in the previous enlargements. But for those countries, it's the only game in town. I mean you do have other actors you do have russia and china and there is a lot of talk about this especially on the security front on the um, infrastructure front and so on but frankly in terms of the overall vision for how a society would develop uh, there is clearly no alternative to kind of the europeanization path of of those countries and I think it is now the moment to ask ourselves, what kind of countries and societies do we really want to see in that part of Europe, which, when you look at the map, is quite central geographically, especially to kind of the the southern part half of, of Europe. So do we really want to let this uh, fairly small place with uh, not more than 20 million people altogether to basically rot away? And I think the answer is clearly no. Now is the time to start thinking about the next steps. What are the things that we can do to compensate for non-enlargement? We will probably see a bunch of crises if there is a no for opening negotiations this week. We will probably see a governmental crisis in North Macedonia, less so in Albania where Edirama is going to put all the blame on, on France and on the West, but may revive his Greater Albanian ideas. But longer term, there is a need for some policy to be put in place. Uh, just saying no is not going to be good enough.
0: That's one of the things we should now look into a bit more is what kind of things that you can do. Joseph Borrell has been nominated as the next high representative for external affairs and, and vice president of the European Commission. When he was doing his hearings earlier, he said that Balkans would be a big priority for him, that his first trip would be to Kosovo. What kinds of things do you think he could do?
3: It's very important that um, that we have a high representative who comes from a country that has been aspiring to membership from opposition Of, you know, not being a founding member, but also as it is known in Spain that, you know, European integration and and democracy and the restoration of democracy are two sides of the same coin. And that, you know, this is a country where famously it was said that, you know, Spain is the problem, Europe is the solution. And the role which Europeanization, as Vesela, has said is perfectly understood in terms of the incredibly deep and thorough transformation of society which followed. uh, Both I mean which preceded enlargement because Europeanization was a precondition for, but also a consequence of enlargement afterwards and both in economics, in, in politics, in society, in all aspects of our of our lives. I think Borel, like every other Spaniard, believes in the virtues and the merits of enlargement and has a like, sound, fair, relevant policy which we should all be committed to. Unless, you know, there are grounds and reasons which can be, you know, objective reasons for refusing to engage and to satisfy the uh, European aspirations of countries, there's a policy to which, you know, we should pay maximum attention it's true that uh, Spain has not been comfortable in the Western Balkans with the Kosovo issue, but it was committed, you know, from the beginning uh, in the war of Yugoslavia to, and, and actually this was kind of for the first international participation and involvement of Spanish troops on uh, outside of Spain after membership. So, I think Spain knows well the region despite the non-recognition of Kosovo and has been engaged with the region. You know, Javier Solana also promoted the OCRIT agreements in Macedonia. So I see no reason why Borrell, even if there were doubts on this Kosovo thing, would not be fully committed to this dossier. And the fact that he has announced that his visit is to Kosovo, it's something very telling of, of something he actually said at the hearing and that he has repeated that. I mean, all these discussions about being a geopolitical commission and speaking the language of power and all those things, you know, to to act uh, globally with uh, China and the the U.S. and so on is very nice talk. But if you cannot do your own neighborhood and there you have power, you have the instruments. So there is no excuse for not being able to make this work. But let's remember one thing, is that Borrell will not be the enlargement uh, commissioner. There will be an enlargement commissioner who has, of course, a very clear mandate. As Vesela was saying, accession talks are not foreign policy anymore. You know, they are in between both things. And that's why we have an enlargement commission and a huge staff dedicated to that. Of course, that needs political impulse. But the kind of deadlock we are seeing in France At a very high level, it's something which is going to take a lot of uh, pressure and back and forth to try and mobilise. But I think there is no other way around. We cannot say no, just no, to the Western Balkans. And I don't think Spain is going to be, and Borrell, as high representative, is going to be comfortable with just a veto and a blockade of of this process without putting a lot of energy in trying to make it work for everyone.
0: So Susie, what do you think Borrell could do to try and get the French on board with a big Balkan strategy?
2: Well I mean I think that what the French are pushing for is that is an understanding that kind of being a a more geopolitical commission um, an EU that sort of understands the world it's, it's living in and behaves accordingly starts at home and that the policy going forward on enlargement needs to sort of take account of the European position you know. I was just listening to your con- conversation, and you know, I absolutely agree that just saying no isn't enough. We need to sort of show what what comes after that in terms of the relationship, and so on. But in a way, I, I think that is what the French government is sort of trying to, to say too, with this this idea for kind of a reassessment about where, where enlargement's going. And so, I think that that some sort of attempt to bring that process into play would go some way towards assuaging French concerns about this. But but equally, I think that it is important to take seriously... This idea that, that Europeans feel that the EU can only be sort of stretched so far. And, and, and it's a real dilemma about whether we focus first and foremost on honouring the commitments that we've made to these countries in the Western Balkans, or we sort of pay attention as part of this process to to, this, to what citizens in the EU are saying. I was just looking back, Mark, at the report that you and I wrote in spring this year with Adam Laurie about what Europeans really feel the battle for the political system. So the survey data that we had in there showed that. The France is the country with the highest sense of 58% that the EU might realistically fall apart in the next 10 to 20 years. But all of Germany, Italy, Poland had over 50% on this answer too. And, and you know even Spain had 40%. And I think that was the lowest one. So I think there's a need to sort of show a balance between these different concerns as part of this kind of relook at where accession policy is going.
0: There are a few kind of specific questions about the EU in the Balkans that I've been sort of mulling over. Maybe you can put some light on them. One is this question about the enlargement commissioner. We talked about that before in this podcast. You were, in fact, saying how absurd it was of having a Hungarian nominee who used to be Justice Minister be the person who decides whether these countries are meeting the Copenhagen criteria. Secondly, if we think about the alternatives to enlargement. One of the big things that has been going on is talk about regional economic integration. I hear that they've made a decision to have monthly meetings between some of the key states to work out how to get rid of some of the barriers between them. Is there more that the EU could do to support that? And then thirdly, how does the EU fit into the wider ecosystem? Richard Grinnell, the famous uh, American ambassador, Germany, who we talked about on the podcast before, has been putting himself forward as a mediator between Serbia and Kosovo in the the Balkans. I mean, how much is the US and the Trump administration part of the picture as well?
1: On the enlargement commissioner, I think um, the... The jury is still out, whether the portfolio of the enlargement commissioner candidate Trochani, who was declined by the legal committee of the European Parliament, whether this portfolio is going to stay intact. But if it does, that means that his successor, who is the current Hungarian permanent representative in Brussels, Mr. Oliver Varchili, is going to be the enlargement commissioner. Um, look, this is not a great sign and not only because Hungary is part of the reason why France is so radically against enlargement but also having a representative of the Hungarian government going around the western balkans will probably mean that following the urban model may become less controversial for them if they think look this is who Europe sends to us why should we try to stop our instinct to centralize Control over media, to centralize control over economy, and so on, and and obviously to play with the judiciary, which is urban specialty. Sorry to interject, but just
2: I think this, these things are always trade offs, and everything I hear from from actually from both the French and and the Hungarian side is that both countries are very keen to keep the portfolios where their candidates have been rejected as they are. So I wonder if, um, you know, despite the challenges of having a Hungarian responsible for enlargement, if it's in the interest of keeping that sort of principle that the por- portfolio remains as they were, but it's a different candidate, then, then France might live with it for now.
1: Yeah, I think there is also a third portfolio, the Romanian portfolio, which is in play. So there, if there is some sort of a swap, it could happen there. But you're right, very, the probability for that is very low. In any event, if this stays the same way, combined with Grenell's activities in the Balkans, Grenell was called America's trumpiest ambassador. He uses trolling in international diplomacy, and he was very close to uh, to John Bolton, who had a very clear line on Kosovo and Serbia. Bolton was the only one who vocally supported a land swap between Kosovo and Serbia among the, the Western community. And so if we have somebody who does not know the Balkans, which is the case with Grenell, who, however, would probably have a very clear agenda to bring a quick solution of some sort to the Kosovo-Serbia issue, and at the same time an enlargement commissioner who is not very well respected in the region and within the Commission, I wonder whether this is a good uh, way forward for the relationship of the West with the Balkans. At the same time, the region is moving. And as I said, there are third actors. There is uh, quite a big Russian plan for intervening both in the security and the energy sector of some of the Western Balkan countries, most notably Serbia, who also wants to join the eurasian union later this month all of this put together creates uh, i think quite a troubling picture
0: well i think we're out of time um for this discussion but we'll see uh, what decisions the european union makes in the near term and i think we will be returning again to this topic maybe we should do it when borel does his, his famous trip to pristina and we can see uh We might have a clearer perspective on how some of the internal EU fights have have shaped up by then. But for now, I think there's one thing left we have to do with this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Nacho, what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
3: Uh, A very scary thing called the age of surveillance capitalism. (laughs) There is a it's a very worrying thing, so I don't recommend it to. You know, if, if, if you have problems with sleeping well, but, you know, there's a very stark reality on, on how, you know, things are getting a bit out of control in terms of uh, personal data uh, and privacy and uh, big companies, you know, yeah.
0: Okay, what's on your bookshelf, Susie?
2: I've just finished reading um Spring, a bit more uplifting than that shows um, by Ali Smith. It's the third in a, um, a trilogy about post-Brexit decision society um, in, in Britain. So really, it's a novel, um, but also a sort of an exploration of Britain's relationship with, um, with the other uh, from elsewhere and, and what, what role migration plays within that.
0: Okay. What about you, Vesla?
1: I am uh, reading very carefully a book uh, which, about a topic that has been bothering me for a while. Namely, what happened with our societies 30 years after the wall fell, because it's in the next weeks we will be thinking about it more and more. But I I think also that has to do also with the discussion we just had. The book is called The Light That Failed, and it's uh, a book by Ivan Krastev and Stephen Holmes that is being presented at the Frankfurter Buchmesse, as we speak
0: fantastic i just just finished reading the final issue as well and reviewed it in prospect so i very much add to your recommendation and then the other thing which is slightly lighter but which maybe tells us something about our age is a wonderful mini series on the bbc called state of the union which is about a series of 10 minute sketches about a couple who uh, are going through some marital problems and are, are kind of having counseling and in a way uh, it's maybe uh, a useful lesson for the world because it ends in a. Well, maybe I should I shouldn't spoil it, but there is a sort of hopeful uh, message about uh, coming through difficulties and bringing. People- <laughs> you
2: Not know, particularly right? lighthearted. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's written by Nick Hornby, um, di- directed by Stephen Frears. So it's very, very good. Anyway, this brings us to the end of our podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to it, please do let your friends and acquaintances know about it by writing about it on your social media pages or ours, and above all, by giving us a great review on whatever platform you're using to listen to this on. But for now, from Vesta Chernova, Susie Dennison, Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hachenbräuch and our editor is Marlena Riedel. We'll put links up to all the book publications that we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. Thanks a lot.